chapter 4. That's not the text we're going to be in this morning, but certainly it is a corollary text to what we will be looking at this morning in Acts chapter 21, which is why I wanted to have Tom read that so that it would be in our mind as we work our way through Acts 21. Is it not working? I'm on. So we are in Acts chapter 21 this morning. We're going to be looking at the first, uh, what is it, um, 16 verses of Acts 21. Before we jump into the text, let's have a word of prayer, and then I want to to give a little bit of understanding where we're going with the text. Then we're going to, as we usually do, walk through the storyline of Acts 21, 1 through 16, to uh, grapple with what's going on there. So let's pray. Lord, help us. As we open your text, that we will understand that it will transform us, that your spirit will be at work in us, challenging us and encouraging us with what you have to say and what you intend to communicate in this text. I pray that you will help me to communicate it accurately. And uh, Lord, I pray you will do your work as you see fit in our midst for your glory. In your name I pray, amen. Acts chapter 21 is an interesting text. It's interesting from a variety of ways, number, but two ways I want to focus on this morning is number one, you're going to find there's a problem that we need to address. Uh, seeming issue that seems to be a problem that we need to understand and grapple with. Um, and so we're going to spend time looking at that, uh, that problem and try to understand it uh, because God has given us some data and we need to make sure we, got, we try to fit the data together with the bigger picture. Does that make sense? That being said, the storyline that we have in Acts 21, 1 through 16 is not... Uh, the problem that we find that is in the storyline is not central to the storyline. It's, it's an important part of the storyline, but it is not central. So we're going to look at the problem, but then we're going to focus in on the real central part of the text. And I find it really interesting that it's at this point in time that this text shows up on our radar screen, because I think it has a lot to say with, with uh, a lot of things going on in our world. So... With that in mind, let me read it, and you can follow along, and then we will talk our way through the text. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 21, uh, Luke writes this about Paul and himself as well, because he obviously uses the second person plural we there. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days were there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling uh, down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we were greeted, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, 
And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of uh, um, Nansen, how do you pronounce that name? What's that? Nason. Yeah, thank you. Um, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should uh, lodge. And that's our text this morning. You'll notice early on in chapter 21, you have what we have typically described as the storyline of the text. And we certainly have that. It's a storyline of, of Paul's journeys, connecting one story to the next story. So there's a flow of the story. That's what this is taking place in the beginning here as, he, as Luke describes their journey. Uh, what I'm saying is that that's its purpose. It's, there's not a whole lot there that, that need exegesis. It's just a storyline that connects the dots, as it were. Does that make sense? just connects the dots. When we get down to verse 4, however, everything changes. Because here in verse 4 is when we begin to discover there is this potential problem. You notice verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, we were, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Here's the problem. He's going to Jerusalem. Isn't he? He's going to Jerusalem. And then these people, these disciples, speak to Paul and tell him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, what complicates the problem even more is that the text says, again, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've seen for two chapters that Paul's going to Jerusalem. It starts in chapter 19, verse 20. If you flip over there real quickly, 19, verse 20. I'm sorry, not 1920. 1921. After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So that's the introduction, this idea of Paul going to Jerusalem. Now at this point in time, you'll notice in 19, verse 21, it says, After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and go to Jerusalem. So it says, Paul resolved in the Spirit, and most of your texts probably have the word Spirit capitalized, right? Yeah, most of your, most of your texts have the word Spirit capitalized. That is, to be honest with you, that is the, the translator's guess, if I use that word, in context, they think that most likely that, that word spirit in 1921 is referring to the Holy Spirit. It may be. It may not be. The word that is used here is not unique to the Holy Spirit. It is a word that's commonly used for your spirit, the Holy Spirit. The word is uh, pneumatos, and it's used 
generically many, many, many times. So when the translators translated this from the original Greek, what they did is they determined that that was probably referring to the Holy Spirit. And it could very well be referring to the Holy Spirit. It may also be it's referring to His Spirit. Okay, do you follow me so far? And one of the clues, I think, in the text that say that it may be referring to His Spirit is because it says, now Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia. That's very different from God told him, God the Holy Spirit told him to go there, right? It's differently stated. It doesn't exclude the idea of the Holy Spirit. And it's not, that's not set in juxtaposition or in opposition to the Holy Spirit. Just because if it is Paul's Spirit, as in Paul speaking to himself, and determining he, he has a desire and, and, and commitment to going to Jerusalem, that does not mean that it stands in opposition to the Holy Spirit. It could be an opposition. It could not be. Does that make sense? I determined this morning to come here to minister the Word. Didn't I? And you determined to come here. Does that mean that since you determined to come here, you were in opposition to the Spirit? Of course not. doesn't mean you're in agreement with the Spirit, but it, means, it, does, it certainly doesn't mean that you're in disagreement with the Spirit. There's other data that must be there to come to that conclusion. Does that make sense? So this could be referring to the Holy Spirit, and, he's, and, and then the idea is uh, that he is determined or resolved to be in agreement with the Spirit. Does that make sense? Or it could be he just resolved in his spirit, I'm, listen, I want to go to Jerusalem and deal with things in Jerusalem. And at the same time, there is, he's bringing, most likely at this point in time, bringing the gifts, the money from the Corinthian church to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem as well, to the Jerusalem church. So, either way, the idea is more generic. He's resolved to go there. Whether it's by His Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, it's just there. In chapter 21, verse 22, the statement is... Um, that's, not it, that's not it either. In chapter... I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 22... And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what chapter 20, uh, verse 22 and 23 say. So verse 22 of chapter 20 make it pretty clear this is what? The Holy Spirit at work, isn't it? Interesting. Interesting. He's constrained by his own spirit? It says, I'm bound in my spirit. Bound in my spirit. That's interesting. Um, and that is the Holman. Holman. Okay. Interesting. Most translations translate it the other way in various forms. Yeah. Yes. So, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. Most, most translators have seen the 22 statement be the Holy Spirit because of verse 23, as, you, as your text identifies. Either way, whether it's 22, 23, Spirit, Paul's Spirit and the Holy Spirit, or both being the Holy Spirit, clearly Holy Spirit's involved at this point. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit is involved at this point in 22 and 23. Um, He's at work there. Okay, now that we jump over to chapter 21, verse 4, 
And we have these disciples, and they're speaking to him. And it says, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So it almost sounds, when we read it, it almost sounds like earlier there's a conflict. Right? I mean, earlier it's like the Holy Spirit is, is telling him to go to Jerusalem, and now these disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And it says, through the Spirit. Right? And the implication of chapter 21, verse 4, is it is the Holy Spirit. I think the implication can be argued pretty strongly. That's the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit, they were uh, speaking to him. How do we bring this together? Is Paul in rebellion to the Holy Spirit here? By going to Jerusalem. I would argue in context, as you work your way through the storyline, all the way through chapter 23, because the storyline flows all the way to, to, through 23, it is pretty clear in the storyline that he is not in opposition in rebellion to the Holy Spirit at all. The Holy Spirit is, is blessing him, guiding him, encouraging him. All the things that the Spirit does to, you answer it, faithful or unfaithful people? Faithful people, Right? Not rebellious people. That's a good question. That's a really good question. But hold the thought. So what do we do with verse 4? And having sought the disciples, we we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And this is where, I'll be honest with you, it gets a little dicey. We're going to get a little dicey here. I'm trying to figure out how to fit this together. And I'm certainly not saying that I have the end story and the final story, what I declare is it. But as I look at chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22, all the way to chapter 23, and look at all the data, what seems to be happening here is that the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul to go to Jerusalem, seemingly. At the same time, you have these disciples and here's my guess. This, again, you notice I'm qualifying my statement pretty significantly. My guess is that the Holy Spirit is at work and revealing something to these disciples in chapter 21, verse 4. Now, you feel free to disagree with me on this one. That's fine. I'm just trying to wrestle with the problem that we have here. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because I want to get into the more important thing. But the Holy Spirit is revealing just like he revealed to... Paul in chapter 20. Did you hear it in chapter 20? Again, verse 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what he says. So the Holy Spirit is at work in him, and in the midst of the Holy Spirit being at work in him, is saying, here's what's going to happen. Everywhere you go from here on out, what's going to happen? Trouble. Difficulty. Flogging. Imprisonment. Persecution. Painful life. Right? My suspicion, and again, you hear me qualifying, my suspicion is the Spirit is working in these disciples about this very thing. That this is what's coming. This is what's coming for Paul. And so there is, uh, the Spirit's at work, opening their eyes to see what's coming. Their response to it is, Paul, don't go. 
And that would make sense, wouldn't it, at some level? You love Paul? He's ministered to you? The Lord's used him powerfully in your life. You've been transformed by his ministry. He's been the means to the end of glorifying Christ in your life. Makes sense, doesn't it? And then you have the same thing happen later on in the text when we get to, uh, when we get past uh, the 1 through 6 section and we get on to the next section, he goes to Philip's house and then this guy Agabus shows up, as we've read, and this guy Agabus takes, verse 11, takes Paul's belt and binds his own feet and hands and says what? You hear it right there. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then the same thing happens again. When we heard this, we and the people were urged, they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. That's what we see, right? And so they're saying, no, Paul, don't go. This is what the Lord is saying. This is what's going to happen. So problem in the text, how do we sort through it? I think this makes sense. You may see it a different way, and I'm cool with that. But the one thing I, don't, I, I, I will not say is that, there, is that the Spirit is somehow saying, do it, don't do it. Um, and, and I also am not willing to say that at this point in time, because the evidence is pretty clear in chapter, later in chapter 21, 22, and 23, that the Spirit is blessing His faithfulness. And so this is a solution to throw out to you to consider. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Ex- exactly. 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 We're getting it. The, the Spirit has revealed this is what's going to happen. We don't want you to go through that. Not to go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think that's the answer to the dilemma. At least I think it's a good workable answer to this seeming dilemma. I just want to put that out there for you. I'm not a guy who wants to avoid any problems or say, let's pretend like it doesn't exist. But let's, let's point it out and try to sort it out. Yes. Yep, yep. The, the, Paul has gotten the revelation that uh, uh, difficulties are coming. Uh, the disciples have gotten the picture pretty clearly. The difficulties are coming. Agabus has gotten the picture. Difficulties are coming. And then we work it through. Guess what? Difficulties come. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's what I think the answer is. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, so there's, there's the picture. So it becomes most clear in 7 through, through 16 when this guy Agabus comes in and... and lives it out by demonstration with, with Paul's belt and shows that, that what's going to happen. And the storyline matches it. It's, it's there. We'll see as we go our way through. So that's the background, the color of the story, the problem in the story uh, that we need to see. But there's something bigger going on. All that, even the problem, is really just color to the story. It helps skin it out to flesh it out so you can see it more clearly. But that's not really the story. The story ends, or the, sto- the real story starts 
when uh, Agabus' story ends and the people begin to react to Agabus' demonstration. Again, verse 12, when we saw this, we and the people there urged him, uh, urged, uh, him not to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 13 and following is where the real story in this text begins. And this is where we're going to camp for a little while. Starting in verse uh, 13, Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I want to stop on that one just for a second. I want you to understand that this is a rebuke. He's rebuking these people. Agabus, Philip, the, the, the uh, daughters. He's rebuking, uh, he's rebuking them. And the other, the other disciples that are there, including Luke at this point in time. Because you'll notice verse 12, it's a second person plural again. When we heard this, that includes Luke. So even Luke is saying, don't go, Paul. And so when Paul hears all this, he answers them as they're begging him not to go. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Now, I, I would argue that his statement, when he, when he asks the question, what are you doing, is an important question. That's the rebuke. The rest, of it's, the rest of it's filling it out or fleshing it out. The rebuke is, what are you doing? Whoa, back up the horses. What are you doing? Why would he say that? Why would he say to them who love him so dearly that they don't want him to suffer, why would, they say, why would he say to them, what are you doing? And the answer that's really important. Because in the midst of all this demonstration and the, the cry out not to go because, of the, uh, because the Holy Spirit's opening their eyes about what's going to happen, their response to that truth is not good. Their response to the revelation of the Spirit to them about what's going to happen to Paul, their response to it is not good. What Paul is in effect saying in the question, what are you doing? It is this. He's saying, what would motivate you to respond the way you're responding? What would possibly be the fuel in your minds to cause you to respond this way? And I would argue that the statement in there that says, it says um, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. The weeping part is them weeping. It's not Paul's weeping, it's them weeping. So when he says, what, what are you doing? And the, the first part, uh, the, first, the, the question, what are you doing, is first connected to their statements, right? Their statement is what again? Don't. Don't go. And they're not just saying to Paul, don't go, they're what? In the midst of saying, don't go, they're weeping, they're mourning, they're grieving because they know what's going to happen with Paul, right? Because the Spirit revealed it. And he looks at them and he's saying, what are you doing? Your whole being is focused on what? Well, not necessarily selfishness, but Paul's, Paul's what? Temporal safety for Paul. Temporal safety here and now, 
temporal security here and now, temporal comfortable life here and now. I mean, let's cut to the chase. (laughs) That's exactly what Paul is rebuking them over. And not only are you saying don't go, but you're weeping over the possibility that I am going to go. Is that a legitimate realm of weeping from Paul's perspective? No! For Paul, the legitimate weeping is over what? Their reaction, and, and, and more globally, sinfulness in people's lives, right? Including his own, but whoever, because he's a human too, right? And, and his weeping is over what? A lost and dying world, isn't it? Is it not Paul's focus? That's absolutely Paul's focus. Where's these people's focus? On the here and now, on Paul that they love, Right? Yes. Yes. If you didn't hear what what Tom said, their love for Paul and their desire to have Paul with him, with them and save is superseding their love for Christ. And in effect, denying the love of Christ. And so I would argue when Paul in verse 13 answers, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart if what I'm saying is right about the first two things, the, the question, what are you doing, and the, and the first statement, then weeping, if, that's, if, those two, if what I'm understanding about those two is correct, then the, the breaking my heart thing is not I'm weeping because you're weeping. Why then is Paul's heart breaking? Yes, they're not weeping for the appropriate things. They're not weeping over a lost and dying world. They're not weeping over a world that needs Jesus. They're not weeping over anything but temporal things, which is why I had Tom read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's exactly where that text goes. We look not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so when Paul talks about it's all resulting in the breaking of my heart, it ultimately is breaking, his heart is breaking because they just don't get it yet. They just don't get it yet. Yes. Yes. Which is, which, which is a demonstration that they don't get it. Absolutely. No question. They're caught up in the temporal. They're caught up in the here and now. They're caught up in their love for Paul, not in for what Paul is living for and who Paul is living for. Not Paul's message. Ultimately, they're caught up in Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. What, what Tom is referencing is when Peter, uh, when Peter, um, when Jesus says, I've got to die, and, and Peter says, no, 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 you don't. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Why? Because he's after what? What does Jesus say? He's after earthly things, right? He's after earthly things, not heavenly things. We find the same theme right here. And it breaks Paul's heart. It absolutely is devastating to Paul. 
And so he rebukes them. Strongly rebukes them. Now, he goes on and he fills out the storyline for the whole point of this whole event. Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Did you hear what he said? Let me read it again. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He starts out by saying, what are you doing? What are you after? That's the point. What are you after? What's your focus? What's important to you? What's your goal? And you're weeping over it. Why? You're breaking my heart because you don't get it. So let me help you get it. That's what he says to him. You get that? That's what he's saying. Right after he asks the question and makes those two statements, weeping and breaking my heart, he says, so in effect, so let me help you realize what should be the focus of your lives. What should be the modus operandi? What should be the reason to get up every morning? What should be the theme? What should be the foundational principles of a believer's life? And what should it be? It's not what you think it is. It's really easy to look at this text and say, well, the theme is I'm willing to what? And the story is what? I'm willing to die and what? Be imprisoned, right? You think that's what it says, right? And the answer is no, you missed it again. That's not the story. That's not it. Now it is story specific for Paul because the Holy Spirit told him that's, that's what is going to happen, right? But even that is secondary for Paul. Because you know what the story really is? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the point of the story. This is the whole laser focus in this story. For the name of Jesus Christ. Lay aside, for sake of discussion here, at this point, death and imprisonment. To boil all away, what Paul just said is, what are you doing? Weeping. Breaking my heart. I want you to realize there's one reason and only one reason why I exist, Paul is saying. And it's for the name of Jesus Christ. Period. Nothing else. Period. For the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it says. What does that mean, for the name of Jesus Christ? Well, that's really important. This is absolutely essentially important. And you've heard me say it before. I just want to remind you, as Peter would say, I know you know these things. just want to remind you. 
for the name of Jesus Christ means this, simply summed up. When it says for the name, it means for His name to what? To be glorified, spread, magnified, trumpeted. That the fame of Jesus would spread in accordance to the worthiness of His name. That's the idea. He said, I once, in effect, this is what Paul's life is saying, I once was absolutely in opposition to the name. Was he not? He was absolutely in opposition to the name of Jesus Christ. That is, the name of Jesus Christ as in the fame, the magnification, the glorification of Jesus Christ. And then on the road to Damascus, he was gloriously converted, wasn't he? The Spirit moved and drew him in and he was gloriously saved. Was he not? And what happened? Everything changed, didn't it? Didn't mean Paul became perfect. No, didn't mean that at all. But it mean everything changed. And the result was, from then on, his focus was where? On the glory of Christ. On the spreading of His name. On the spreading of the fame of Jesus Christ as worthy. Right? That's right. Philippians chapter 3. Everything else was counted as dung. That's exactly why. Absolutely. And so the point of the text, as he, as he says to these people, this small gathering of people, is what are you doing? You've missed the whole point! If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the thing you need to understand more than anything else is you have been saved for a purpose. And the purpose is to what? Glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Magnify Christ. Shine out in the midst of darkness. Are these not themes that we see throughout the New Testament? We're described as being lights in the midst of darkness, are we not? And that we will shine as brightness, as bright lights in the midst of that darkness, right? As we hold forth the word of life, right? And it's not talking about an organization up in New York. Talking about the truth is revealed in the scriptures. And so Paul says, in effect, I exist for only one purpose. And it defines me. And it must always be the thing that defines me. And that is what? The name of the Lord Jesus. Anything else calls for one thing and one thing only, and that is repentance. Everything else is just falls under one category, repentance. With that in mind, <clears throat> Paul specifically, dialing into his story, says, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, verse twenty three again or thirteen again, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In effect, you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I just want you, first those in that room with him, as well as all the readers after Luke writes his storyline, he says, I want you to know something. 
when it comes to who Jesus is as my Redeemer, as my Savior, I want you to know something. It's never Jesus and or Jesus or. (laughs) It's just Jesus. That's what it means. When he says, I'm willing to be imprisoned or suffer even to the point of death for the name of Jesus Christ, he is saying there is no cost too high. When I think about the value of Jesus, when I think about the value of my Redeemer, when I think about what I know about Jesus, when I think about all that has been revealed about the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, when I think about that great transaction that I come to the table with nothing, this is, what, this is all the backstory that Paul is talking about here. When I think about the, what I brought to the table, I brought nothing but sin. And when I think about that, and I'm reminded of that, and I think about what Jesus did at the cross when he took on my sin. And he absorbed the wrath that was for me. And, then, and he stood in my place. And then he put me in his place and gave me his righteousness. When I think about how great his love is. When I think about how wide and how deep his love is. There's no cost too high in comparison. There's no price too high. There's nothing else worthy of my life. Nothing else compares in worthiness. Going back to what Tom mentioned earlier, Philippians chapter 3, everything is done in light of the, of, of, of the glory of Christ. Does that make sense? Paul's saying when I look at Christ and what has been revealed about Jesus and then I look at everything else, <clears throat> there's no scale. Do you realize that? It's not that Jesus is a 10 and, 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 and my family is, is, is a 4. You realize that? Because then there's some worthiness there, right? Do you realize it doesn't work that way in God's economy? It's not 10 and 4. My job is like a 2. And, and, and my pets are maybe a half. I'm just throwing ideas. And my health maybe fits in there as like a 2 or 3. You know, that's, th- that's not how God's economy works here. If Christ is who he says he is and who the scriptures reveal him to be, then there there can be no comparison. And if we don't get it yet, we have to fall back on a verse that we know so well here at Redeeming Grace, right? For all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 All things are from him and through him and to him. Do you sense that everything finds meaning and purpose for its existence solely in Christ? Period. Does that make sense? And as I've said so many times in recent weeks, does that make sense? And then I want to ask another follow-up question. No, I mean really, does does that seriously make sense? 
When we look at our own lives, does that really make sense? See, I think too often for Christians, what we do is we end up having, having this, this non-celestial scale. Where Christ is at 10, we better keep him as 10. Right? I mean, he needs to be number one, right? We don't want to slide down to number nine because there's room for somebody else or something else to get up there, right? So he's 10. But my family's six. My safety's five. I put safety below because uh, who among us wouldn't be willing to die for our family? If you have a good family. If it's dysfunctional, I get it, you know. But if you have a good family, you know, you're willing to suffer for your family, right? But it's really easy for us to do that, isn't it? The moment we start doing that, we are making a hierarchy of gods. That's all we're doing. That's exactly what these people are talking about in this text as they're talking to Peter, or I'm sorry, to Paul. Because they're saying, Jesus is number one, but Paul, you're like eight. Oh, yeah, we want Christ to be magnified. Just not through you like that. Not through you in suffering. Not through you in imprisonment. Not through you in, in death. Really? At some level, that's definitely stealing glory from God. Which is why Paul reacts so strongly in verse 13. They are attempting to steal glory from Jesus. Because they're not seeing Paul as purely and simply an instrument in God's hands for Christ's glory. What's that? We'll get, we're we're going to move on yeah, in a little bit. Yep. And so the point I'm trying to drive home to us is this idea that if it's true that all things are from him, through him, and to him, to him be glory forever, amen. That means in my life and in my death. Doesn't it? What did Paul say elsewhere? He said, if I live, it is for Christ. And if I die, it is for Christ. So if I live or I die, it's for Huh, isn't that interesting that he said that? Right? It's true. So he said. His point is that whatever comes, it's for Christ's glory. And who am I to think I know what's best for Christ? Right? Who am I to know what's best for Christ? Then we come to verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, what's that? Right answer. Exactly. Right answer. The, I find the text today to be really intriguing in light of where we find ourselves today. I do. Because I find today Christians everywhere, seemingly in our country, hollering about this and that and something else, right? Hollering about politics, 
hollering about who's in office, hollering about something else over here, something else there. And, and, and yet, here's what I don't hear from people. Here's what I don't hear. You know, I'm not real excited about blank person in office, but the will of the Lord be done. That's not what we hear, is it? Why is that, do you think? Now, that answer is kind of complicated. But generally speaking, I think it is because we don't, just like these people didn't, I don't think we recognize. I don't think we recognize that God is at work and that he's glorifying himself. and, And I find that instead Christians overall, I'm just being general here, but overall I find Christians all worked up about what this is going to do to me and what that's going to do to my investments and what this other thing is going to do to our church maybe even. That kind of really spiritualizes it, doesn't it? Or or what something else is going to, going to do to something else. And we're not thinking about it in, lo- in lines of all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. We're not thinking about it from the perspective of is God greater than earthly rulers and presidents and congressmen? Or is he not? Is he? Or isn't he? Is God greater... than sin. Is he greater than immoral governments? And when I say that, I'm not talking about just the current government. I'm talking about every government probably ever. You do realize that. Government of man is always going to be immoral. Always. Always has been since the fall. And there was no government before the fall. Always has been, always will. Are we people, and I'm just saying this because, because there is a lot going on right now, isn't there? And there's a lot that's captivating people's hearts. Are we people who are finding ourselves saying, you know, whether I like the decisions of a government official or not, whether I like the situation I find myself in or not, whether it's comfortable or not, whether it's safe or not, whether it's secure or not, whether it's healthy or not, whether it's whatever or not, may the name of the Lord be praised and glorified. Where? Firstly, in me. Correct? And then through me into a lost and dying world. You see... The more things change, the more they stay the same. Don't they? The more things change, the more they stay the same. I always chuckle every four years when they say, this is the most important election of all time. Like, really? You said that four years ago. <laughs> and four years before that. I'm 60, almost 62 years old, and I think I've been hearing that since I started getting interested in politics when I was 18. My goodness, if God can use if God can use Nebuchadnezzar 
If you can use the Assyrians. If you can use Nero. He can use our situation here, can't he? And he's not reacting to, he never has. He is a sovereign God who sets up kings and tears down kings. The issue is not who is the president. It is not who is the, the, um, the senator. It is not who is the governor, who is the, the representative, state or federal. It is not who is our county commissioner. The issue is, where's my heart? That's always the issue. Where's my heart? Is my heart after the glory of Jesus Christ? That his fame would be spread? Is my heart after that light would shine in the midst of darkness? And light shining is not, I, I'm, 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 I'm arguing for the Republicans or I'm arguing for the Democrats. That's not light. It's not. Light is Jesus. That's what 1 John says, doesn't it? That's what John says. He is the blank of the world. It's light. Isn't that interesting? And without that light, the whole world is what? In darkness. Are there any other messiahs? But Jesus, no, there are not. It doesn't mean we ignore. Certainly we have a, social, a societal mandate from the scriptures that we are to be engaged and involved for the betterment of people. I get that. But light only comes from the gospel, friends. It amazes me how many Christians are more than willing to talk politics, but they're not willing to talk about Jesus. Stunning. And here's Paul saying what? And it's appropriate. This, what I'm talking about is really appropriate because, because there is a religious governance in Jerusalem. That religious governance is going to come hard against him in a little bit. Do you realize that? It's going to come hard against him. And Why? Because he's shining a light in the midst of darkness. And they're going to come after him. And he says what? I'm willing to what? I'm willing to suffer persecution and die. Imprisonment and death for the name of Jesus. Not for my political party. For the name of Jesus. Not for what I want. Except that what? He knows Jesus and what he wants is Jesus. You know what I think the sad trouble is, friends, today in Christianity? I'm going to close on this. But we, we, we see texts like this, okay? And we hear, I'm willing to be imprisoned and die for the name of Jesus Christ. And we say, amen. It's very easy, isn't it? It's really easy to say that. And to think we're in agreement with it. But you know what the problem is? among vast swaths of Christianity? We don't know Jesus. We don't know Jesus. 
this is why for the past 10 years at least that we've been in Mark and John and with laser focus on Jesus. Why? Because that's what matters. Now we need, we, I'm, not excluding, I'm not excluding the Trinitarian God. I'm not when I say that because we can't understand Christ outside of understanding the, the Father who sent him and the Spirit who is glorifying him. Right? We can't, we got to understand the Trinity and the Trinitarian God that we serve. But my focus is on Christ because he's the exact representation of the Father and because the Spirit's purpose is to glorify Christ. And so, what saddens me is why do we get caught up in all these other things? Ultimately, it's because we don't know Christ and why don't we know Christ as we ought to? Because we don't consider Him as worthy as our cheap words tend to say we consider Him. Because if our hearts were hot after Jesus and inflamed after Jesus, you know what? We would be disgusted at the Sunday School Answers for Jesus. We'd be ashamed of how we talk about Jesus or not to talk about him. Most of us know our pets much better than we know Jesus. And that's really, really troubling. How could Paul speak this way? Because he knew Jesus. Jesus' high priestly prayer was that very thing, that they will know the Father and the Son who he sent. Paul talked this way because he knew Jesus. If you don't believe that, read Romans 1 through 11. Read Colossians 1 and 2. Read read, uh, Ephesians 1 through 421. We go on and on through all of his writings. Read the first half, at least, of every one of his letters. The dude knew Jesus. Can I say that that way? (laughs) Paul knew Jesus. Intimately knew Jesus. And that's exactly what the Spirit used in his life. You know, I spent a long time here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. I spent a long time saying that we were in a time of preparation. Haven't I? You've heard me say that that, that phrase many, many times. We're in a time of preparation. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. To quote Joel. But I believe that that time of preparation is winding down. I do. I really do. I'm very comfortable saying that. And I'm not just saying that because of our government as it is today. I've been saying it for a long time. God has been merciful to us. Do you realize that? He has been merciful to us. Giving us an extended period of time of preparation. I believe, I really do believe that time of preparation is quickly winding down. And I find pastors and I find just Christians in general with their heads in the sand on this subject. And we're going from day to day 
acting as if tomorrow will be just like today and we don't even realize that Jude warns us of that very perspective. Doesn't it, Rusty? And so does Peter. The time of preparation is coming to a conclusion, friends. Not saying that to scare you. Not by any stretch of the imagination. It is to remind you that God said that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is not unique to Paul. He's speaking to a group of Christians who have been scattered by, by, by persecution. There's just a tiny little remnant left in Jerusalem and they're under severe persecution. He's going back to see them. We have lived in a unique time in America of little to no persecution. There's a time of preparation and I fear to say that I think the vast majority of Christianity has squandered it. And when Paul said to these people, what are you doing? Weeping. Breaking my heart. I think that statement in verse 13 very strongly echoes to today. What are we doing? Weeping over the wrong things. And breaking godly people's hearts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> It is so easy to be lulled to sleep in good times. We have the pattern throughout the Old Testament of the, of the Jewish people. When the Lord blessed them, they forgot about Him, enjoyed the blessings. And then God disciplined them and they cried out to God, Lord, protect us from repeating that cycle. Help us to drink deeply at the fountain of living water. To enjoy You, to learn of You to feast on you, to drink from you. You promise that out of us will flow rivers of living water. Lord, I pray that we will be well watered. And that the rivers will flow for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.